<clears throat> Good evening, once again. <clears throat> uh, the last few days I've been looking at uh, one of Suzuki Roshi's lecture, lectures, Um, and it, um, it's a lecture about pure silk and sharp iron. Uh, that's the metaphor that's used. Uh, we refine silk by washing it many times so that the threads are white and soft enough to weave. We temper iron by hitting it while it is hot, not to forge or to shape it, but to make it strong. Uh, and he says, this is um, why we um, practice, why we sit, why we meditate. Uh, this lecture begins with a wonderful uh, story. It, he says, um, last week, one of the Sunday school children saw me sitting zazen, and she said, I can do it. And she crossed her legs, and she said, now what? <laughs> I was very interested in her question because many of you have the same question. <laughs> you come here every day to practice Zen and you ask, now what? Now what? I don't think I can fully explain this point. I'm using this, you know, to tell you something about teacher and student. Who's the teacher? Who's the student? Do you find out how to meditate from somebody telling you, or do you find out by finding out, <laughs> by meditating? I don't think it's, it's not a question that can be answered. You, you should know for yourself. You should know for yourself. We sit in a formal posture, in a formal way, so we can experience something through our bodies, not by my teaching, but by your own physical practice. In a way, um, you know, in meditation you're on the spot, you have some somewhat fewer options. You know, normally uh, you get, we get to move, we can move closer, we can move further away, and we get to talk. We get to say, come over here or go away. <laughs> Various things. <clears throat> so when you're meditating, you have fewer possibilities of how to alter your experience. So chances are you begin to experience what your life is like a little more directly. His lecture continues, however, to be able to sit in a particular way and to attain a particular state of mind is not perfect study. After you have full experience of body and mind, you will be able to express it in other ways as well.
Without sticking to a formal posture, you naturally convey your mind to others in various ways. You will have the same state of mind sitting in a chair or standing, working or speaking. It's the state of mind in which you do not stick to anything. This is the purpose of our practice. Uh, these days I'm struck by how much, uh, you know, as a culture, uh, we stick to things. Uh, how we're supposed to do it. I just heard a, a term the other day um, about, um, you know, for instance, when people are eating and they, there's certain way to eat, there's certain things you should eat. And um, apparently somebody came up with this phrase, instead of anorexia, you know, where you don't eat, this is orthorexia. <laughs> you have to eat only. You know, follow the orthodoxy of what to eat. And then you can, because you're doing it right, you think you will have great benefit. So our, our culture seems to be in a whole period where if you listen at all to the radio, which I occasionally do, since I'm not watching television, <laughs> people talk about a lot about what people should have done or shouldn't have done, and what were they thinking, and didn't they know, as though uh, the way to live a life was that you got the right instructions in your head, and then instituted those on your body and mind. And if your body and mind didn't do what you told it, apparently you are a bad student or a bad person. And this is the kind of thing that we keep thinking we have more moves to make, where we could get better at following the instructions that we have implicitly adopted for how to be a good person. And, you know, there's a lot of useful things that come from this. You know, um, we can be uh, trustworthy and organized and responsible and conscientious. <clears throat> but sometimes we're spending so much time being trustworthy, organized, conscientious, responsible, we don't know what's going on inside. So when you sit, you might start to find out what's happening inside, what you're feeling what you're thinking, what you're sensing, and begin to know for yourself inside. It's hard to do this when you're busy instituting the program on yourself, okay? with the head above your head. <laughs> and, you know, we think... Um, and the interesting thing about having standards and measures and, you know, is that you can then check on your progress. <laughs> and chances are, I don't know anybody, I don't think, maybe somebody here would like to introduce yourself later, somebody who's succeeded. I've measured up. I've become a really good person. 
Of course, the Buddhists and others say that pride is the last thing to go. (laughs) So, um, uh, I had a um, one-day sitting at Gringotch on Saturday from 9 to 5. When I was doing one-day sittings... um, with the Zen Center back in the 60s and 70s, we would sit from 5 to 9. Um, but when I started leading one-day sittings, I thought, well, let's do 9 to 5, <laughs> because we have this other life, we're not, and we might like to have a weekend and not miss it by having to lose Friday night so we can get up, etc. You know, so. so 9 to 5. And uh, during the question and answer period, a young man who's a student at Gringotts, he said, I'm a student here at Gringotts, and I'm, I'm, I'm wondering how I will know when I have done enough formal practice. Uh, and I don't think you will ever no, and if you're waiting for some signs, basically if you're waiting until you know enough, nothing will have happened. <laughs> and one of the things I told him about was um, the fact that I have stiff wrists. Most people can, you can bend your hand back, right? Most people can, often people can bend their hand back, you know, almost 90 degrees. Mine bends back, you know, a few degrees. <laughs> So if you try to shoot a basketball, you have to actually throw it. You can't, <laughs> you can't actually shoot it, you know, because you have to. So I once asked uh, one of my teachers, um, not a Zen teacher or a Vipassana teacher, but, you know, a hands-on healer teacher. Um, so tell me about stiff wrists. And he said, why don't you study this for a little bit and see what you notice? So I started sitting and I would notice, and a lot of the time it seemed like my awareness just came to my wrist. And I didn't have hands, consciously, you know. And then he said, um, so I told him about this and he said, Oh, Ed, you spiritual people are all the same. Uh, Yes, tell me more. (laughs) He said, You spiritual people are all old souls. You've had so many past lives. You've had a chance to make so many mistakes in your past life. So in this life, you decided not to make any. That's your mistake. (laughs) You're not going to make any mistake. And to be on the safe side, don't have hands. So sometimes, you know, where, where, where does that come from, to have hands and to the impulse to do things? And we don't know whether it's a benefit quite or it's not a benefit. I've come to the sense of I do things as an offering, um, not because it's the right thing or the best thing, but it's something I feel like doing. I feel like doing, not because... Let me run through the list of instructions and see if I'm doing the right thing. 
You understand? And if you're checking to see if you're doing the right thing, way too often you won't be. <laughs> so this is very painful. How am I going to get anywhere? So I told the student at Green Gulch, um, I don't think you'll ever know. And really, what you're studying in practice is not to know in your head better how to do things, but to be learning how to trust your heart and your second chakra, your felt sense. What do I feel in my body, in my being? What do I, and what do I feel in my heart? And as you know, then you, then you wouldn't know, would you? And then you're like, but then I wouldn't know. And so the, this, you don't know. This, your second chakra, you don't know. You are learning how to trust. Can you trust your heart? Can you trust your second chakra? so that your head can relax and help you do what your, you know, this is what your heart desires or longs for. This is what you uh, intend or will, you know, what you're, what you're drawn to, what you long for. That's different than, I'm going to figure out what to do and do the right thing here. And then, and then, we, and then go on feeling like you don't know, actually, inside. And of course, um, this is a lot of work because there's a lot going on in our heart and there's a lot going on in our second chakra and often it's not even ours. Other people are in there. <laughs> try to figure out, like, what is my heart saying? Oh, there's a lot of voices. Which one is mine? And in your second chakra, there's a lot of voices. Which one is yours? Aside from the problem then of listening or not listening, because most of us have had experiences of going ahead and doing something, and it's a disaster. <laughs> because in our head we said, oh, I... I, I this seems like, it, I, this, I shouldn't be doing this. This, 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 this. this isn't going to work. It's going to be a mess. But in my head, I'm saying, oh, but it'll be okay. It'll be all right. So are we going to listen to our head or listen to our felt sense or listen to our heart? And this is, and we're, so in order to trust, we're also going to have to make mistakes like that. There's no way to learn how to trust and just get it right or know that you're right. So all the time, if we're moving towards living from our heart, you know, in touch with our felt sense, we will miss the mark sometimes. We will make mistakes. Then what will we do? But if you do it with your head, you're also going to make the mistake of not making any mistakes <laughs> and not knowing what's going on inside. So you lose. <laughs> but most of us are, as Hafiz says, in the, in the school of, oh, we've, I've still got a thousand moves. I've still got a lot of moves to, ways to get this right so that my life works better. <laughs> One of my students, Danny, is uh, visiting here from Florida. 
He lives in Cocoa Beach. Uh, and he's married and has two children, 16 and 19. And uh, about two years ago, he had, um, he just realized he had multiple myeloma. And then he had a stem cell transplant at UCSF. And right now he's okay. So he's, he, but he's happy. He's quite happy that he's still here. It seemed for a while like he might not be. <laughs> so he says, I'm happy. I'm, I'm, I'm living on borrowed time, on free time. <laughs> so um, he told us a story the other night. He said uh, a little while back he, was, uh, he woke up and he usually rides his bike to one of his sitting groups that he leads. And he said he woke up and he thought, it's a dangerous day. Where did that come from? <laughs> you, don't, you don't figure this out in your head, it's a dangerous day. And he thought, and then he thought, felt, I need, I need to be really careful today. And normally when he rides his bike, he has his iPod and so he took off his iPod, left it at home, <laughs> thought, I'm going to really be, pay attention today. I'm going to watch the traffic, and I'm going to be aware of what's going on all, all around me. And then uh, he came uh, out from behind a hedge, and there was a car coming, and the woman driving was talking to somebody in the back seat. <laughs> so he... He quickly turned the bicycle to go in the same direction as the car, and the car hit him, knocked him off of his bicycle, and then the woman stopped. After she found out that he was okay, she started getting mad at the person in the back seat. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Whose fault is it? <laughs> yeah. Who needs to pay more attention and do things differently? You want to assess. Um, and Danny was checking out his body, <laughs> and everything seemed to work. And then he uh, walked home, pushing his bicycle. <clears throat> and he thought, um, boy, even if you do everything you're supposed to, you can still get hit by a car. <laughs> But if he hadn't had some premonition, some felt sense, he could have been, he would have been broadsided by the car and underneath it. So something, and on one hand, something's working, and, and even when you're doing your absolute best and completely present, something can happen. There's no way to do everything perfectly enough so that things come out the way you want them to. Uh, as a friend of mine says, it's hopeless. <laughs> you still think you have a thousand serious moves. <laughs> um, and Hafiz says, of course, that if you stop, if you surrender, 
and you get off this uh, in this world of how am I doing? Is this what I, am I doing it okay? Am I doing what's right? Should I? I need to be more this. I should be more that. I shouldn't be this. I shouldn't be that. And then how do I get? How do I institute all those directives onto what's below the neck? <laughs> and meditation actually is more and more about listening to what's below the neck rather than telling everything else how to do it. Rather than sending out the directives and the instructions, feeling what's inside. Feeling, sensing thoughts, emotions, and using more and more using emotions and your felt sense to orient you in the world. And who to, who to be friends with, who's a good person to be friends with, who's not a good person, and to begin to, on the basis of the information that's coming through your body, you're using that information to orient you rather than the instructions that we're all carrying around. Of course, this is also related to not just getting it right, it's also related to how do you have an experience that you could like, that you like, that you want to have. Uh, and uh, tonight I was thinking about this and I was remembering uh, when we first started at Tassajara in 19... Oh my gosh, this is going to date me. 67? Yeah, 67. <clears throat> uh, and I was the head cook. And um, we started serving breakfast uh, in the meditation hall. And we were serving cereal and we thought, well, let's serve some milk and sugar with the cereal. And then to pass all the milk, the milk and sugar down a row of eight or ten or twelve people, it took a long time, so we thought, well, we better have a tray of milk and sugar for every three people. Are you with me here? Mm -hmm. This is a lot of trays, a lot of containers of milk and sugar, and then some people didn't want white sugar, they wanted brown sugar, and some people wanted honey. And shouldn't you be able to have it the way you want it? This is what our culture tells us. And then most of you don't, so then what a failure you are. You can't have it the way you want it. That's what success is, having it the way you want it and bossing things around, telling them how you want it, and then they make it that way for you. So after we were doing this for a while, we, we had come back to the kitchen. We'd have all these trays and all these dishes, and then it wasn't just milk, but some people wanted half and half. It was in the days before soy milk and rice milk and... Some people wanted canned milk. Some people would rather have molasses. So we had a lot of containers and it was a mess. And the third or fourth day of this, um, we got back to the kitchen and then uh, somebody came into the kitchen and said, Roshi wants to have a, give a lecture to everybody in the zendo. So we went back and I sat down and, and he said, Excuse me, but I don't understand you Americans. <laughs> when you put so much milk and sugar on your cereal, how will you taste the true spirit of the grain? <laughs> it had never occurred to me that you might 
that there was such a thing and that you might aim to taste it. And then he said, you know what, you know, we're already thinking, uh, what? Did you think you could add milk and sugar to any experience you have to make it taste the way you want it to? <laughs> Did you think that? So what, as you go through your life, what's your, what's your intention, what's your aim? Are you aiming to make your experience be the way you want it to be, the way you think it should be, the way that if it was like that, you could say, oh, my Buddhist practice is really getting better because check out this experience that I have. And that really indicates that, you know, I have progressed <laughs> for a couple minutes until <laughs> the next experience comes along. <clears throat> And it turns out, of course, that, you know, uh, meditation is like this as well. Are you busy adding milk and sugar or trying to fix your experience to make it taste or be the experience you want it to be? A thousand serious moves. I'm just going, oh boy, I am in for it. <laughs> this hurts. <laughs> this, this is unpleasant. But it's what's happening inside. It's truly your experience. And at some point, it's, you know, you can laugh about this, about all your efforts to make things better and finally enjoying, tripping over joy, bursting into laughter over, you know, this is as good as it gets. This is, this is life on planet Earth. Wow, how about that? What a hoot. <laughs> but you're not laughing, you still have a thousand serious moves. <laughs> this is like when um, I gave a lecture about clowning. You know, a few years back I did Zen and clowning workshop at Tassahara, and I, I told the audience, you know, there are five big fears in Buddhism, right? Lows in your life. Uh, losing your body, losing your mind, losing your livelihood, and having to speak in front of the assembly. <laughs> and basically, you could summarize these as one big fear. You might be a clown, and other people might realize that. Other people might notice. So you better, like, don't want to let on that I'm a clown. <laughs> don't want to be laughing want to be serious. So it's, it's interesting, you know. And um, Danny said to me, we're both essentially introverts. So we've worked hard all of our lives in order to like, look like we can be social. <laughs> and, and get up and give talks. And, and Danny was terribly shy, terribly shy. And he told us the other night, he said, when I was in high school, my mom asked me, who are you taking to the senior prom? <laughs> and Danny was so mortified about the senior prom, he couldn't ask anyone. So finally, the night of the senior prom came, and he, he, got, he had a nice uh, suit or a tuxedo or something, and he took himself out to dinner at a local Chinese restaurant. 
And the Chinese restaurant was pretty much deserted. There was one other person there. They had white tablecloths. And he, he had this very sad dinner all by himself, but he felt pretty good about taking himself out. So he had to study how to be social and how to... And one of the things he does now is he gives talks. He works in the field of energy efficiency. So he comes out, PG&E pays him to come to California and teach them how to have energy-efficient houses. Uh, Lawrence uh, Berkeley Laboratory is the energy-efficiency one, uh, has him out here this week to talk to them about some of the work he's done in energy efficiency. So he said, I figured out finally how to give a talk. I just decided I could be, make a complete fool of myself. Is that okay with me? Oh, okay. <laughs> now I can talk. <laughs> so I'm, I'm like this too. The reason I can sit and talk is because some of you might conclude he's really a fool. That was a dumb talk. And, you know, okay. You know? <laughs> You experience things the way you experience things. I can't help that. You know, my job is to give a talk, <laughs> and you will be. Some of you will have. You know, you will have your standards, and then you will determine where on the scale, like top of the line, Jack Hornfield, and you know, and then, and then who's the best speaker, the second best, and you know, top, you know, top speakers, and you, you know, you'll have your lists, and you know. So, I don't worry about it. <laughs> uh, and otherwise, I, you know, otherwise, how will you show up in public if you, if you start to... And this is happening, I just found out, you know, in Japan, there's hundreds of thousands of mostly young men who never leave the house, who surf the internet, and um, play video games and surf the internet, and their parents bring them food on trays. Japan is a shame-based culture. If you went out, somebody could shame you about your improper behavior. And besides, you have no practice at it because you're busy with video games. You're busy with surfing the internet. You're busy with the screen. So what have you learned about, this is a different version of following the rules, of you've, you've been so involved with a particular activity, you haven't learned other ones. Your attention has been only there, so you don't know how to talk, how to invite somebody out for a date, and you haven't continued to be out, and then eventually try it out and get over your shyness. So um, many of us, you know, we can, we're studying how to, how do I finally come, get out? Uh, we're not, uh, most of us, we're not in our video games, but we're in our structured awareness where we're trying to accomplish, get better, improve, you know, by some standard. So tonight, um, again, I'm encouraging you to be shifting towards noticing what's in your heart, 
noticing what's in your Japanese called hara. What is your felt sense? What is inside? And listening uh, deeply to what is inside so that you begin to be able to connect what is inside with what is outside. What are you, uh, you know, what do you do? And if you, and can you, do you feel like, well, I, I want to. Sunday night, I think it was, I guess it was just last night, I had a dinner party. And it's so much fun. Because I feel like doing it. And I feel this wonderful pleasure and joy in um, dreaming up the menu. And I got to talking with the young man at, at Good Earth. And, um, and he said, oh, that's a, that's a good menu. <laughs> I said, well, I have written cookbooks. <laughs> I, so I think I'm going to, I'll bring him a cookbook. Um, I'd like to share with you another poem, um, this one by William Stafford. It's called The Way It Is. Uh, and even though you may not think so, you know, I would say there's something to be said for this poem. Um, William Stafford says, um, there's a thread that you follow. It's actually, you know, there's a thread inside. There's a thread you follow, it goes among things that change, but it doesn't change. People wonder about what you're pursuing. You have to explain to them about the thread. But it's hard for others to see, and sometimes it's hard for you to see. While you hold it, you can't get lost. Tragedies happen, people get hurt or die, you suffer and get old. Nothing you do can stop times unfolding. You don't ever let go of the thread. <clears throat> uh, and this is also to say then that you know, we like, um, you know, the grain, tasting the true spirit of the grain. We also have a true spirit. We have a true heart. Uh, in Zen, we call it true nature, original face. We have, um, and, you know, this is a, a very dear, precious person, so to speak. And I'll tell you a little story about this. I've, For myself, I've decided this is Kind of like when I was a little boy, my parents uh, would sometimes call me Eddie Bear, since my name is Edward Brown. And we read the Pooh books, and there's a Edward Bear in there, I think. So I was Eddie Bear, 
And whenever I was Eddie Bear, I was the most adorable, precious, wonderful person you could ever hope to be. Friday night in Dolores Park, we were walking back after going to a restaurant, and a woman there in the park recognized me. And she said, I know you, I know you, you're Edward Brown. And I said, yeah. <laughs> um, and we were, and she said it was her husband, she and her husband were having their first night out after their baby was eight weeks old. And I said, well, I and Danny and Margo, we all know what that's like. Congratulations. And I told her, you know, when my daughter's baby was born, my daughter called me up and she said, Dad, I had no idea you could ever love anybody this much. And um, I, I, I wanted, I didn't know whether, do I remind her that that's the way we loved her or... <laughs> oh, oh, you mean the way we loved you? And um, this young woman in the park said, Yeah, when my son was born, I felt that way, and I, I, real, I loved him more than I'd ever loved anyone or anything. And I realized my mother had loved me like that. And... I had a huge feeling of forgiveness and appreciation for my mother, realizing how much she had loved me. She's not yet to the stage like my daughter got to after six months, Dad. How come nobody tells you it's this hard? <laughs> but this is very interesting because I've spent my life saying, like, why doesn't anybody realize I'm Eddie Bear? What happened to him? <laughs> Where did he go? And instead of, instead of noticing that I'm Eddie Bear, people are noticing, you have problems. <laughs> you get way too angry way too easily. You need to work on that. You should know better. <clears throat> You're way too critical and judgmental. And that's not Zen. <laughs> I guess you don't realize I'm Eddie Bear. <laughs> who's who's going to notice this? Where did he go? And then, you know, and then, of course, Mom and Dad are going like, you know, Edward, Eddie Bear disappeared pretty early because pretty quickly, you know, Edward Bear, why are you, don't make so much noise. And Edward Bear, your, your room is really messy. You need to clean it up. And then what happened to Eddie Bear? Who was... <laughs> So precious and so adorable. But, you know, this is to say we all have, we know, we know inside what a precious person we are, but the world doesn't see it. It's very mysterious. And even if I'm way too critical and judgmental, I know that basically I, I have a, a, a dear, precious, good heart. I know that. I know that. Other people don't seem to notice that. <laughs> and um, so, since I started thinking about this, I, I'm also aiming to see um, this, this core, this true spirit in people, you know, rather than something to find. So, what, what am I? What are you doing with your time? You know, are you, are you, are you? 
you know, when you taste the food, you say, this is right, this is wrong, this is good, this is bad. I like this, I don't like this, this needs. Or you taste it and enjoy it. You taste something and appreciate it. And of course, we also have the sense of, um, you know, if we go to McDonald's or, or all the fast food places, you want to have something that's dependably the way it's supposed to taste. Basically, so you don't have to experience anything. You take one bite, yep, it tastes the way it's supposed to, and now I can just eat mindlessly and I don't have to experience anything. Good! Because <laughs> to actually experience anything, you're in the realm of trusting your heart, trusting your body, finding out what's going on, tasting things, and not being able to add nearly enough milk and sugar. And So this is interesting. I find it very interesting to, to, so to taste the true spirit is also to taste what is precious, something, something precious in your life. Uh, so I found that the more uh, focused I am when I taste, then the more it's not just the food, but it's something precious, and it's, it's from beyond. And and the space opens up. And it's sweet or sour or salty or bitter or spicy or peppery, but it's also vast, spacious, and precious and still. And it's not because I make it that way, it's because of being receptive, focused and receptive, rather than I'm going to say how it should be, and I get to do that, and I'll get better at that, so that I can more produce the experiences that I think would be good to have on my resume. <laughs> so this is, um, I find, a very uh, wonderful kind of study or practice or work to be doing to notice what's inside, to experience things closely, carefully, see what you can find out. And so often we turn to a teacher to tell us, how can I make my experience better? How do, where's that cream or sugar that I can put on? Rather than, can I just be with this experience? If we're not careful, we get caught in these kind of endeavors. Uh, it's probably, isn't it about the end of our time here? Oh, we have a lot of time, but uh, probably. Um, I happen to have with me here one of uh, Kay Ryan's poems, which I liked a lot, uh, which I realized tonight when I saw it, that it also fits in with my theme tonight, of, and the theme of the poem by Hafiz. Uh, she says, um, <clears throat> it's on the nature of understanding. Say you hoped to tame something wild, and you stayed calm and inched up day by day. Or even not tame it, but meet it halfway. 
Things went along, you made progress, understanding it would be a lengthy process, sensing changes in your hair and nails. So it's strange, when it attacks, you thought you had a deal. Uh, so to say just a little bit more, and then um, I'm going to finish up. Um, so on one hand, we have the possibility that there may be some way to live our life that we can check off. We've done things well and thoroughly and um, right. We've been responsible, conscientious. On the other side, you know, there's what about have I have I uh, been in touch with my heart? and learn to live. In Zen we say you realize your true nature and you learn to express yourself fully. And this is an interesting point because any expression, if you express your heart, of course, then people who are in this other world of judgment can say, I like that, I don't like that, that's good, that's bad. You know, the critics, there will be all sorts of critics. But on the other hand, if you if you don't express your heart, you feel a kind of emptiness, a kind of longing to express what's in your heart and to express and manifest your love and your kindness and your generosity and find ways to do that. Um, and it's also, um, you know, sometimes the ideas uh, in Buddhism is, um, there's a kind of idea you should get rid of ego. So, <clears throat> Uh, I think this is a kind of rather important point that ego is not the same. You know, here in Suzuki Roshi's talk, uh, he says, uh, ego is what covers your good character, your good heart. Ego is what... So ego is actually the, the part of us that is concerned about all the judgments and evaluations. And then that gets in the way of expressing our heart because we're so concerned about how others will experience it and whether they'll like it or not, which means will they like us or not. And so rather than revealing ourselves, and to, which means opening ourselves to criticism and judgment, rather than revealing ourselves, then we keep ourselves hidden. We keep our heart hidden. So in this way, ego, the concern about the judgments, keeps us hidden. Ego covers our good heart, our good character, our capacity to express things with love and kindness. Uh, and also, of course, we worry about then making mistakes. So this is, this is pretty challenging, how to find places where you can do something with your heart and your good feeling and your good spirit 
whether it's the garden or the cooking or your work or your family or your communications or your, um, you know, your house, your children, your parents, it's, it's pretty challenging. Uh, and there are, of course, a lot of good um, teachings about how to do this. Uh, so I've studied this for a long time, and I really appreciate being here tonight with, with, um, uh, in a room where you're studying this as well. <clears throat> uh, in this sense, you know, uh, we could also say then that each of us has um, a particular gift or a particular dream, particular gifts or uh, things that we have to share. <clears throat> um, but to share it, we have to move past our fear of um, the judgment and the, the criticism. We have to be willing to get out of, you know, our, our video games and our absorption with, you know, how, how our, how our, what's our score and whether we're winning or losing and if we have another thousand serious moves or not. <laughs> and, oh well, I will express myself, you know. So, um, anyway, thank you. Um, I think I've said, uh, covered the things I want to say, so thank you very much, and I hope you have a good evening. Blessings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.